One of the unexpected joys of being a father is reading to my children. I didn't think I would like it as much as I like it, but I like it. I find myself, though, undone by some of these children's stories. You know, I'm reading them as a very, well, very, as a somewhat mature adult, and, and I find myself tearing up when I'm reading these children's stories. And uh, the one that always gets to me that seems to uh, penetrate any hardness in my heart is uh, a book by Shel Silverstein called The Giving Tree. Maybe you, you know this book. Uh, but I, I read it, and I find myself uh, moved every time. And because it really relates to what I want to say tonight, I'm going to read you a children's book right now. I know, right? I know. Uh, so this is the, I'm going to read the story to you. Once there was a tree, and the tree loved a boy. Every day, the boy would gather her leaves, climb her trunk, swing from her branches, and sleep in her shade. And the boy loved the tree. One day, the boy carved words into the tree, saying, Tree, I love thee. And the tree was happy. But time passed, and the boy grew older, and the tree was often left alone. One day, the boy came to the tree, and the tree said, Boy, come and climb up my trunk and swing from my branches and eat apples and play in the shade and be happy. But the boy responded, I am too big to climb and play. I've discovered what real fun is like. I want some money. Do you have any money? I'm sorry, said the tree. I have no money. But take all my apples and sell them in the city, and then you will have money, and then you will be happy. And so the boy gathered her apples and carried them away, and the tree was happy. The boy stayed away for a long time. But then one day the boy came back, and the tree shook with joy and said, Come, boy, climb up my trunk and swing from my branches and be happy. Life is not about fun and games, said the boy. I am too busy to climb trees. I want a wife and children, and I need a house. Can you give me a house? I have no house, said the tree. But cut off all of my branches and build a house. Then you will be happy. And so the boy cut off all her branches and carried them away, and the tree was happy. The boy stayed away for a long time. The tree grew sad. When the boy came back, the tree was so happy she could hardly speak. Come and play, boy, said the tree. I am too old and sad to play, said the boy. I'm all alone now. I want a boat that will take me far away from here. Can you give me a boat? Cut down my trunk and make a boat, said the tree. Then you can sail away and be happy. So the boy cut down her trunk and made a boat and sailed away, and the tree was happy, but not really. After many years, the boy returned. I'm sorry, boy, said the tree. I have nothing left to give you. My apples are now gone. My teeth are too weak for apples, said the boy. My branches are now gone, said the tree. I am too old to swing on branches, said the boy. My trunk is now gone, said the tree. I am too tired to climb onto trunks, said the boy. I'm sorry, sighed the tree. I have nothing left now. 
I am just an old stump. I don't need very much now, said the boy, who looked very old. Just a quiet place to sit and rest. I am so very tired. And the tree straightened herself up with great dignity and said, well, an old stump is good for something. Come, boy, sit down and rest. And the boy did, and the tree was happy. In Silverstein's modern parable, I am reminded of one who called himself the Good Shepherd, who was willing to give until it killed him, who was willing uh, to give his advice and his kindness and his vitality and his breath and his blood until he stopped breathing and bleeding. I want to talk about that shepherd tonight. John 10 reveals to us the character of a true pastor. You may know that, uh, that the Latin word for shepherd is pastor. And this text offers us a memorable and somewhat disturbing contrast between pastors, the predatory pastor and the good pastor. When it comes to predators, we have to give some background. You know, Jesus arrived uh, and came to us through the vehicle of a robust and rich Jewish tradition. He was a very learned person and deeply in touch with the critical and canonical texts that formed the mind and soul of Judaism. And <clears throat> there was a, a priest, he was old, he was an old man, um, he was ordained, and he was serving at a particularly difficult time in the history of God's people. His name was Ezekiel, and God came to him and said, I want you to speak to the nation. By the way, being a prophet was the worst gig you could ever have. Nobody liked you, they chased you away, and then they killed you. And so he chooses this old man and says, I want you to look at the rot in the world. I want you to look at the rot in, in your political scene, and I want you to look at the rot in your markets, and I want you to look at the rot in your social structures, and lastly, I want you to notice the rot in your religion. He commands Ezekiel, this old priest, to speak against his fellow clergy. He says, I want you to speak against the shepherds. Some of these shepherds stole sheep. Some of them starved sheep. Some of them scattered sheep. Some of them killed sheep. And lastly, some of them ate sheep. Graphic uh, terms used to describe abuse. Abusive practices that religious uh, leaders engaged in with the people that they were consecrated to protect. And they did just the opposite. And God cares so much about this that he uses these graphic terms and says, I want you to speak to these people and point out what they've done. Years later, Jesus, steeped in the grand tradition of Ezekiel, employs the prophet's language this descriptive, disturbing language 
to, in some ways, talk about the clergy of his own day and their abusive tendencies. Notice what he calls them. Verse 2, thieves and robbers. Verse 5, strangers. Verse 12, hired hands who don't care about anything but a paycheck. And, And another in verse 12, the most vivid image, wolves. A wolf is a biblical image, not for atheists. It's a descriptor of religious people, of religious leaders who act in a predatory fashion. We see this in other places uh, in the Gospels. In Matthew 5, Jesus uses the same imagery. He says, Beware false prophets, leaders, who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Paul says this in Acts 10, when talking to the Ephesian elders, he's leaving them. He's saying sayonara, and he's giving them some warnings about what's going to come. And this is what he says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. And so we have these religious leaders, these wolves, in a field. I want you to think about the imagery here. It's a, it's a field with, an, with a differentiated constituency. Not only differentiated, sheep and wolves, uneven. Think about wolves, right? They're, they're fast, they're sleek, uh, they're predators, and they're carnivorous. Okay? Sheep, slow, fat, kind of dumb, herbivores with flat teeth that can't really attack anything but grass. Okay? So the idea is one of vulnerability. The one group is much more vulnerable than the other group. We're the sheep. He compares us to very vulnerable livestock. And in a way, it's very apt because the message of Christianity, by necessity, makes us vulnerable. Because when Christianity is working the right way, it doesn't deal with like our addiction to Twitter and our hairstyles. It deals with the core sins and fears in our lives. It exposes us. Very unnerving. And nothing draws a wolf like vulnerability. When the rabbit cries, the wolf comes a-running, but not to help. I once experienced this early on in my ministry. I always say that I have scars from uh, wolf bites. But I was bitten by a wolf at one time. It was a person uh, who, who was a leader who had a, a sense of, uh, it would seem, of, of care and concern for me and was always interested to hear me kind of spill my guts, or to see it, rather, to see me spill my guts, and then collect data. I didn't, I just thought he was caring, but he was collecting data to use at a later time. As much as I've tried to shake those memories, they're still with me, being bitten by a wolf. Um, I have a friend who's in Alcoholics Anonymous, and he said, ah, you made a core mistake, you made a key mistake, you bled in front of a shark. He said, it's okay to bleed in front of most people. Most people aren't sharks. But if you bleed in front of a shark, they cannot but bite you because they love the scent of blood. Uh, Jesus' words show us with disturbing clarity that religious leaders can act against their religion and abuse. One of the most difficult things for me personally as a minister is hearing your stories of how this has happened to you. I've heard stories about how ministers or Christian leaders have manipulated people for money. I've heard ministers uh, cover up physical or sexual assault. 
I've seen ministers play mind games with people. I've seen them uh, unnecessarily split churches and scatter the flock. I know one family right now whose uh, who's kind of patriarch minister father has excommunicated all of his children because they refused to go to his abusive church. And very famously, I mean, you, you, you may know about this, there was a church where the, the head pastor had verbally abused over 20, of, uh, over 20 of the elders and employees at the church. And that church has collapsed in on itself like a dying star. And many people who have been bitten by wolves, destroyed by people who claim Christian leadership and yet have abusive tendencies, what I discover is that this text is right, that they're either snatched up and eaten or they scatter, but it always ends up with disillusionment. And they start questioning whether any of it was real. Because we trusted these people, and they were to represent Christ to us, and they let us down. And so maybe there is no man behind the curtain, because the representative is so different from the Jesus we find in Scripture. Jesus is unveiling the character of bad pastors, bad religious leaders. Parenthetically, it's an important parenthetical though, for those who say that public leaders of any sort that their character doesn't matter, only their policies, you really need to spend time talking to victims of abuse. You might change your mind, because such a perspective, that character doesn't matter, only policy, such a perspective is many things, but biblical, it ain't. So we have a field with a mixed constituency, sheep and wolves, an uneven constituency, one wins and one loses. And the, the idea is, of course, that lone sheep or even sheep in a, in a herd, don't stand a chance unless they are protected by a good pastor. We return to Ezekiel, 615 B.C. God tells Ezekiel, the clergy will not cut it, and it is so bad that you need a radical substitute, and I volunteer. And this promise of God shepherding his people, echoes through the corridors of time until it literally comes true. 600 years later, Jesus of Nazareth opens his mouth, references the Tetragrammaton, I am, God's sacred name revealed in Exodus 3, and says, I am that good shepherd. Promised by Ezekiel, it is certainly a claim to divinity. Jesus is saying, I am the embodiment, not just of God's ancient intention, but of the God who intentioned. I'm the good shepherd, and I will take care of you. And then he describes the character of this good shepherd. Just four things I'll point out briefly. The good shepherd is personal, verse 3, because he calls his own sheep by name. Isn't it great that God doesn't love you as an abstraction? I love you as a community. I love you as a herd. That doesn't mean anything to me. I mean, what does it mean that you, you know, it's, uh, somebody once said, it's, I love the world, it's, it's individuals I can't stand. With God, of course he loves you, and he loves cabbage patch, patches, and, and he, loves, he loves orangutans, breakfast cereals, fruit bats. He loves everything. There's a sense in which that's true. But he also specifically loves you, because he knows your name, and he knows your story, and he knows your agonies, and he knows what brought you here tonight, and he knows about mixed motives, and he knows about trauma. And you are the person he loves. Right now, as you are, in your pew, it's your name that he knows, and it's you that he's coming after. So he's personal. He's also very committed, unusually committed. Verse 14, I know my own, and my own know me. 
The concept of knowing in this passage and often in the Bible does not mean simple awareness, like I, can, I know where Cleveland is on a map, as we all should. Uh, I don't even know why that's funny or why I said it. But, um, but the language of knowing is often used between husbands and wives to refer, uh, is referring to intimacy. It is also used between friends that suggests a willful commitment. This is what's happening in this passage. I know my own. I'm committed to my own. And my own know me. They're committed to me. And notice, notice the degree of the commitment. He says, I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. The only metaphor God could give us to describe his willful, permanent, loving connection with us is his relationship with the Father. Here's the great news about that. Jesus' relationship with the Father doesn't ever change. It doesn't get better some days and worse others. It's always there, always fixed, always true, forever and ever, amen. And the same thing is true of you. That he relates to you in your actuality right now with this same sort of crazy commitment. I would question it. I don't think that's wise or prudent. I mean, do you? My commitments... I generally only make them because I think they'll make me happy. If things get too difficult, I tend to find very nuanced reasons why I can break commitment. I'm just glad God is not like me. And if you're like me, I'm glad God is not like you. It's also inclusive. Verse 16, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also so that there will be one flock and one shepherd. Notice this is the opposite impulse of the wolf who likes to scatter the flock of God. Jesus gathers them together and then says, how about we add like a billion more people? This is what Jesus does by his magnetic nature, starts gathering around him a community of both Jews and in this text, the veiled reference to Gentiles, so that they will be one flock under one shepherd. He's inclusive. Lastly, he's sacrificial. This is the, this is the most significant evidence of his goodness. You want to know how, why the good shepherd is good? Because... He says it multiple times in this passage, five times, I lay down my life for the sheep. In other words, he's saying, unlike these other shepherds, I will never hurt you, but I will be hurt for you. What we call in theology substitutionary atonement. That means when the innocent gives his life as a sacrifice for the guilty. Here's the thing about Ezekiel uh, 34 that we don't ever read on evenings like this when we talk about the Good Shepherd, just because the reading is too long. Uh, At the end of the chapter, after God has railed against the shepherds, he starts railing against the sheep. Doesn't that stink? The sheep are not left off the hook. He starts delineating between sheep, sheep that are sinners and sheep that have remained righteous. Here's the deal. The, The sheep for Ezekiel are not sinless victims. They are participants in the, uh, in the atrocities around them. And so the good shepherd needs to die for the sheep. Now, the substitutionary atonement is often rejected by people. They don't want to think about that. They want to view the cross through other images. Like, the cross is a moral example of fortitude. You go to your death because you believe in your cause, and you believe in it all the way. Yeah, maybe. The cross, or they, they go cosmic. The cross is a condemnation of cosmic evil. Cosmic evil. So the cross is really about Walmart and tax policies and racism. 
And it shows that those things don't have the last word. Now, those things may in fact be true. There's probably, probably biblical truth to both of them. But it's not the primary motif to understand the, the atonement in the Scripture. The reason that we reject the substitutionary atonement is because it implicates us. It says that your problem is worse than Walmart. Or the, or the, the you know, I mean, whatever it is for you, whatever you're really mad about right now. Your problem is worse than that. Your problem is deeper than that. Your problem is in your chest. You're carrying it here tonight. That the golden thread of all your problems is that you are there. And therefore you, as a human, as a sinner, as a fallen person, need a substitute. Reinhold Niebuhr, the brilliant 20th century theologian, said that people today prefer the idea that a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of Christ without a cross. The problem is that isn't biblical and it doesn't work. Without the atonement, friends, without the substitutionary atonement, Jesus is not, by his own definition, a good shepherd. His goodness hinges on his willful substitution. Jesus the shepherd becomes Jesus the lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And he is cut, and he is punctured, and he bleeds on the giving tree of his own cross. I think that's amazing. I think it's almost equally amazing that Jesus' self-giving was voluntary. He says, verse 17, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to raise it up. This charge I have received from my Father. Nobody is forcing him. It's crazier than that. He says, I want to do this. I want to do this because I see your face and I know your name. And I understand. And I choose demise. Kurt Vonnegut said, Mercy, I think, is the only good idea we have received so far. So we have a contrast, right? A very clear contrast between pastorates, between predatory pastors and the good pastor. I have two concluding words and then I'm done. Uh, they are proximity and prayer. Proximity. Friends, it would behoove us to lean into the chest of our good shepherd and to know his heartbeat because knowing him can protect us from the enamoring howl of the wolf. I have a, a friend, he's a mentor uh, to me. He's a man who never ages. Do you know these people? They must sleep in Tupperware or some chirogenic chamber where they just don't age. So he looks like he's about 50 and he's 82. So maybe he made a pact with a, an angel. I don't know, but he doesn't age. And, but very early on in his Christian life, he had aspirations for ministry, like right away. And he may, met this famous evangelical Episcopal priest. And, uh, and they were talking together because he wanted this priest to mentor him. And in a moment of dark confusion, this priest sexually assaulted him. And I, I asked him, I said, look, did that, did that injure your faith? And he said, well, it disturbed me. 
but it didn't injure my faith because that man was not Jesus. And Jesus would never have done what that man did to me. You see how wise he, he was able to delineate between Jesus and wolves. Because Jesus doesn't act like a wolf. And Jesus won't tear at your throat like a wolf. And Jesus doesn't want your blood. He gave his blood. He doesn't need your blood. There's great wisdom in this, you see. So if you have ever been abused by someone in a ministerial position, first of all, let me say, as a member of the clergy cast, how profoundly sorry I am that that happened to you and how embarrassed I am for our rank and the horror that has been unleashed in your life that hopefully will be healed by God, but there will always be a scar there. Second, please talk about it. Don't hide it. Remember, the enemy always loves to shroud things in darkness and make it all like uh, um, weird and hidden, and you're not sure if you can ever really say anything. It's all nonsense. Grace is true. You can say whatever you have to say. Get somebody that you trust, and please talk to them about it. Uh, thirdly, please know that the behavior of these abusers is nothing like the behavior of the Good Shepherd that they have failed to represent. He offers something much, much better. Something that really can bring healing. So proximity, lean into the chest of that Good Shepherd because he won't hurt you, ever. But also prayer. I really am asking you this. I, I'm, I've realized after sabbatical my desperate need for your prayers. You know, the, the mini shepherds. Because here's the thing. This is what's hard. We're not the good shepherd. We're sinners. Now, we're sinners who want to be honest about our sin and repentant, and we want to be shaped by the good shepherd so that we can resemble him and care for you in ways that are healthy and holy. But the only way we can do that is to, is to pray for each other so that we end up looking a little more like Christ. This is what Peter writes in his epistle. 1 Peter 5, he's talking to elders, presbyters, you know, people that are in charge of churches. I exhort the elders among you, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Would you pray that we, as pastors, resemble that good shepherd? And would you pray that the pasture of your own soul is cultivated in such a way that that same character can blossom from you? And would you trust with wild abandon that the good shepherd has an undeterred and undeterrable love for you and that one fine day we shall see the giving tree standing tall in radiant splendor and we together will sit in its shade and eat apples, world without end. Amen.